Dr. Amalia Gonyas-Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us on the line today for our series on women in the judiciary is High Court Judge Tobo Poyo Durati from the KwaZulu-Natal Division of the High Court. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Dr. Amalia, and good morning, and good morning to all your listeners. It's such a pleasure to have you here today. I thank you for having me on your show. I am humbled. To begin with, you sit on the bench in the KwaZulu-Natal High Court. Can you walk us through some of the key landmarks in your career to reach this point? Uh, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Amelia. And again, thank you for having me on your show. Um, I am a judge of the High Court, as you've correctly said. I am currently acting um, in the Supreme Court of Appeal in Bloemfontein, but Bloemfontein is home because of the coronavirus. So I'm currently acting there as a judge in the Supreme Court, but I still remain the judge of the High Court in KwaZulu-Natal. I was appointed um, on the 1st of June, uh, 2014, but this was after having graduated from my BPROC degree at the University of Transkei. That was, it was called that then, but now it's called Walter Sisulu University. Uh, after graduating there, I came to KwaZulu Natal, um, and I wanted to study, which I did. I studied my postgrad diploma in tax, and after finishing that, I got a place to do my articles of uh, clerkship, so that I could be admitted as, as an attorney. Fortunately, I was able to be exposed to conveyancing. And when I was admitted in 1999 in February, I got admitted as an Athenian convencer of the High Court of South Africa. And then I practiced as a professional assistant at the firm Hoskins and Noble at the time. Um, and in the year 2000, I became a partner of the firm and we changed the firm name to be Noble Poyo and Dietrich's attorneys. That's where I practiced until I was appointed um, as a judge in May, um, in June uh, 2014. I was a director. I, I practiced especially in convincing in estates and later commercial litigation. You've got a very structured approach to all of these, these milestones. Was becoming a high court judge always on the agenda? Um, it was. I always would wanted to be a judge, um, but you you don't become a judge because you want to. You get um, identified um, by the judge president um, to come and act. So you get approached to come and act as a judge. Um, some of the things that they use is your experience and how you have fared um, in the legal profession. And so I was approached, Judge President at the time, uh, Judge Shabalala, in 2009 to come and act. And at the time, I just felt I wasn't ready to be an acting judge or to be a judge. I thought I was still very young. Um, So I declined. Um, And three years later, in 2012, Judge Patel, who was also the Judge President, um, invited me to come and act. And I thought, you know, let me just go and try this. And at the time, he managed to convince me that you actually can be a good judge. You can do well. So, And when I got advice, because when you're going to be a judge, 
um, for me, it's like you are being put in some cage where you can't do most of the things that I have done. So I I spoke to some of my senior colleagues, and they said, if it's, in, it's your dream, you better do it now because things change with time. So I took the advice and I made myself available and I got appointed. And never looked back since. I haven't looked back since. I enjoy my work. (laughs) And thinking about your career as a judge, can you share with us a couple of memorable cases that have have stayed with you? Yes, definitely. Um, Some are, in fact, most of them um, are sad. It's one or two that are not really sad. (laughs) They're sad in the sense that uh, they were all mostly violence. The one that I really had grappled with was a, a lady um, who was charged with murder of a boyfriend. Um, she she was pregnant. Um, in fact, previously they were in a relationship, and the guy wanted it to to to, to be um, kept a secret. And she fell pregnant, and she got a miscarriage. Um, and then she knew that this guy was a playboy, so to say. So wanted to end things with him, but he he persuaded her to carry on uh, with the relationship, um, and even when she tried to terminate it, and she fell into depression and what have you. But then she fell pregnant again, and now she was about seven or eight months pregnant, and she insisted that you need to go and introduce me to your family. And on this part, they were both police uh, uh, officers, and on this day she insisted that you need to go and introduce me to your home. Um, he refused. There was a pushing. She emptied her gun on him and then drove away um, about 300 kilometers, handed herself to the police. Meta came before me. She wanted to plead guilty. At first appearance, she was literally a size 32. But as time went on, she was a size 38, size 40, and she was depressed, mental health affected, and all of that. But the most um, challenging issue that I had to grapple with was the child, because the child now had been born. The father is dead because the mother killed the father, and the child is two years. Who's going to look after this child? This woman had a history of abuse. She had been raped before, and so she took this man, you know, as a one person that she now could trust, another man that she could trust, and then he does this to her. And that, and and this I got from the psychologist's report, that when she, when he rejected her, that was a trigger to bring back everything, and then that's why she acted in that way. So, but I had to balance because the deceased family was in court, nothing, anything much wrong from their son's point of view, and um, almost even rejecting that this was the the, the deceased child. I remember. Um, I had the arguments, and the lawyer for this lady told me that um, the child's birthday is on Monday. I think I had a case on Thursday in my mind, and I think <laughs> that was one of the few times I felt as a mother, let it go. You know, I said I will do the, the sentencing proceedings next Thursday because I need to, I really needed to apply my mind to the facts that were before me. But also to just allow this woman to spend the birthday of a child um, together for one last time and then sentence her because it was inevitable that she would go to prison. 
So it's one of those cases, and another one also, serial rapist, killer. Um, this guy would just go and kill, uh, find uh, 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 partners, kill the husband, rape the woman, and steal all their belongings. Um, but in the end, said he was sorry. You get to ask them, why? Are you sorry because you are caught? Or why did you do all this? You want to understand it's something that they never really explained to you as to why are they doing what they did. And I also was part of the panel in the Shemba matter um, about who the actual hate. That was very interesting. And I was also part of the, 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 the panel in the former president's matter in his application for a stay of uh, prosecution. And that was also very interesting, very uh, challenging. Um, yeah, so I've I've had some... Uh, quite um, memorable cases that I dealt with. Listening to you, we really get some insight into the the scope and the complexity. That no decision is is black and white, clear cut. There's so many factors that you have to take into consideration. Yes, no, there's definitely no decision that is clear cut. As I said, in all of them, you have to, especially in the criminal trials, you have to balance. Uh, the interest of the accused, the interest of society, the seriousness of the crime. If there are children involved, you have to uh, make sure that the children, uh, children's rights come to the fore. Um, you consider them first. Um, so in, in all of this, and you have to try to get to a balance. That is the most difficult thing that you have to do. And they say a judge's job is lonely. It is so lonely when it comes to those issues because... Ultimately, you've got to decide. It's you, nobody else. You can ask for your colleagues' opinions on this and that, but you must then decide. A a lot of weight on your shoulders. And besides doing the day job, we also have the added complexity now of the COVID-19 pandemic, which has had massive social and economic impact on almost every sector of society. Can you tell us what types of solutions are you seeing take place in the justice system to adapt to this reality? Yeah, the, the, this pandemic has really disrupted lives and many of us have been affected directly and indirectly. Um, I remember in the first few weeks um, in March, that, is, that was the level five one, I was supposed to be in duty um, and there was so much confusion at the time as to what are we going to be dealing with and what can we not deal with. But also trying to get people to understand that not everybody must come to work so that you reduce um, uh, human interaction and all of that. And it's not easy, especially in government, because they have to adhere to so many uh, protocol, red tape. Uh, but in the end, yes, we managed to... So some of the new things are Gauteng um, has been very uh, fortunate because there was a pilot project on case line systems that was introduced and it started there because it's one of the it's, it's the biggest division in this country. And so when the pandemic started, they were not so much affected in terms of their day-to-day work except for hearing the actual matters in court, you know, your trials. But with some of the matters, they were able to deal with them um, as if nothing really much has happened. But we've also have adapted, for instance, in the Supreme Court of Appeal, 
Um, they use so much online, um, your emails, the case line, especially when we're dealing with petitions. I understand that previously people used to post these petitions every week so that it can uh, come to you. And some of the judges, one of the judges was telling me that I reside in the rural areas. I didn't even know that uh, there was a, a courier for me. And one of the senior judges phoned and said, I've been waiting to hear from you about this matter. So everything now happens on emails. Um, you get sent an email. We're going to start with our uh, virtual hearings, online hearings. Um, and all the practitioners um, almost prefer it. And because of the um, the age in the bench, <laughs> I laughed when they said uh, people that are over 60 should stay at home. I'm like, okay. How many of us, for instance, in KZN, in Peter Maritzburg, where my base is, will literally be at work? And I think I couldn't reach far um, because most of them are above the age of 60. Um, and, and, and that was the one of the biggest uh, challenge. But yes, we are improvising. We are hearing matters online. We are dealing with matters more um, online than than before. And of course, this comes at a price because nobody was prepared for this. The practitioners were never prepared. That they have to upgrade their systems because now everything is going to be online. Um, even the members of the public, people want to see justice being done. They can't see justice being done because people are limited to come to court. And it is quite unfortunate. It is one of those things that really um, have to be improvised. It sounds as though the systems are revolutionizing themselves and that they will come to a point where it will almost become more efficient. And when we return to some form of normalcy, that doing things online and the virtual space will actually become the new normal. That, that, that seems to be, it, it will be the case. In fact, it seems to me that we're going to cast so much of some unnecessary costs. Remember I said, they were using the couriers and everything, but if everything is online, that cutting all those costs, if somebody had to come to court to to hear a particular matter, you cut down off all, on, on all those costs because it's safer to now sit at home and hear the matter online. Even if you are in the courthouse as a judge, you don't have to have uh, counsel. They, they can stay at home and you can continue. Some of the good things that the pandemic has brought to us like the online virtual hearings and, and some of those things. You seem to be very pioneering. And one of the things that struck me when I was looking at your CV is the extent of your activity in various legal associations. For example, you previously served as the president of the KwaZulu-Natal Law Society, the president of the Southern African Development Lawyers Association, and a member of the South African chapter of the International Association of Women Judges. The International Development Law Organization believes that improving women's ability to work in justice institutions is essential, not only to ensure that women enjoy democratic freedoms and equality of opportunity in the workplace, but also to ensure that specific interests of women are represented and advanced in justice institutions. Can you tell us more about these platforms and also how they promote entry of women into the sector? I was um, active in many of them, the, the president of the Law Society, SADC, 
Um, and I am currently a member of the uh, South African chapter of the International Association of Women Judges. Um, at SADC, in fact, let me start by saying the, the legal profession is male-dominated, uh, and I think we, we all know that. And so it had to take a decision to say um, we need women to be represented in these structures. For instance, at the SADC level, there would be two members from each country um, that are part of the, the, the SADC that will represent um, the particular country. And in most instances, you would find that it's two males. Um, and when I started, I, I put a proposal that it must be one man and one woman. Um, and I remember at the break uh, during that meeting, they said, where must we get them? I said, I, I don't know. You will get them, I'm sure. Did they really so, say they? that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, yeah, they do. And I said, you, you must find them. You must find the women to come into this association. And uh, and I'm proud to say that after I was the first uh, woman president uh, of the SADC, but my my the person that succeeded me was also a woman. And till today, you will have most of the time the executive to be women. So you you just have to be conscious of it, and you as a woman, um, with with lots of support from other men, I, I must say, um, you have to try to make sure that you instill um, the position that it is not normal to have a whole men board. It's abnormal. So they need to do something. Once they they must look at themselves them before a woman says something and say ah. Uh-uh. There's something wrong here. So in those uh, associations, then I was able to have an influence um, to ensure women who want to be judges um, made sure that they get away. In South Africa, we're fortunate in the sense that um, with the transformation and even the government policy, there is a very positive um, mood to have women uh, to become judges, but it is still a very difficult task. Hence, you need progressive leaders that will make it their case that women get identified because they are women that are as equally capable, competent, and fit and proper to be judges. The the women chapter of the uh, Judges Association encourages and shows that we get more women to become acting judges, to become judges, to become magistrates. So that is what we are doing. And where necessary, we also lobby the various interest groups to ensure that these objectives are met. And when you say that, I saw there were some 2017 statistics which indicated that only 37% of South African judges are women. And I think that besides the, the gender imbalance, that there's also an ageism factor to this too. Could you tell us more about your experiences? Oh yeah, you, you know, for for in the past, for a person to be appointed to the bench, you needed to have been an advocate and has been practiced uh, for quite a long time to attain the status of senior counsel. And then I think it was seen as an elevation um, for you to, 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 to get to the bench because of the status that you've had in the advocate profession. But because of our, after uh, after 1994 and the progression in our society, 
then judges could be appointed either from advocates, from attorneys, uh, from magistrates, and from academia. So that has opened doors for more females younger than before, because even though I had practiced for more than 15 years, and I think at the time I was 39, I still had the question that was asked of me at the Judicial Services Commission. But you seem to be young. Do you still do you think that you will be able to stay? And I'm like, I've been an attorney for 15 years, but um, it's still such a, a, a um, an issue because people still get asked, you are, you look young or you still look young. But I, th- I think to some extent, yes, that question is fair because some people believe that maybe you haven't seen it all in the legal profession. But once you have an experience of more than 10, 15 years and you have all the qualities that are required of a judge, it shouldn't be a difficulty. And we need a a political will, so to say, to make sure that women and younger people that are as capable get to be appointed as judges. And I would also say that besides the years of experience, that given our world is so open and online and connected, that we're exposed to so much more, that we gain much more knowledge than we would have done in the past. Definitely. When, when, once, you, once you start any particular area in, in that particular practice, then you gain so much um, experience then that you don't need so much of the other experience that you had in the past. Hi, this is Lira, South African Afro soul singer and songwriter. You're listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, presented by Dr. Amelia Malka on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, a program that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights and democracy. Today, we're talking to High Court Judge Topo Poya Dwati from the KwaZulu-Natal Division of the High Court. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. In the previous segment of the show, Judge Poya Dwati shared with us some of the landmarks in her career on her route to becoming a High Court judge, as well as some of her memorable cases that have stayed with her. And we spoke about ways and mechanisms of trying to encourage more women into the judiciary system. Judge Poyadlati, August is celebrated as Women's Month in South Africa, and it's a period of being able to reflect on the gains as well as looking towards future change. And this year's theme is Generation Equality, Realizing Women's Rights for an Equal Future. Thinking about the recent past, in your opinion, what would you say are some of the important equality gains that women have attained? Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Amelia, for that question. Um, if you look at the law reports uh, in particular, um, before we even go to generally, there's so much that um, women have gained. There are so many cases uh, that have allowed women to participate in areas um, where they were not able to participate before. If you look at the case um, of the Constitutional Court in Shilubane, uh, it dealt with the vendor chieftaincy. Um, the Corn Court today made it possible for women to be appointed as chiefs. Um, if you look at the matter that was had in Cape Town in uh, uh, 2018, and it also ended up uh, in the Constitutional Court, um, 
it recognized the spouses um, in the Muslim marriages, um, the women in particular, as surviving spouses in terms of the Wolves Act. Um, so there are quite a few, even in the treatment action campaign um, um, uh, matter, the women's rights uh, um, to access ARV's medication was recognized. Um, and now in 2020, um, in the Supreme Court, in, in the Constitutional Court again, um, pr- before the, if, if you were gang raped, so to say, um, so if the one of the perpetrators was not in court and only one was in court, it would not be classified as a gang rape because the other ones were not there. But now the, the, the Constitutional Court has confirmed that in our modern society, um, which is founded upon the Bill of Rights, some of the things really need to be discarded. And it's especially because it founded that some of the doctrine of the common purpose were embedded in the patriarchy system where women were treated as mere chattels um, and which ignored the fact that rape could be committed by more than one man as long as others had an intention of exerting power and dominance over such a woman. So by their presence, they, and watching, they can be convicted of rape. So there are quite uh, various gains um, that have been made by women. As I said, again, our country, uh, because of, of, of the policies that we have, um, seems to promote that there should be 50-50 um, in all spheres of government. So there, there is quite a lot that, that we, I must say we have gained. In, in the judiciary itself, we've got our first female president of the Supreme Court of Appeal, uh, Judge this uh, Mandy Somaya. Um, I think she was, she was appointed in 2017, I think, or 2018. I'm not sure. Uh, that she was the first um, black, uh, or even just first female president of the Supreme Court of Appeal. So that's quite a gain again for 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 women. So, and we know that in Parliament we've we've had our first speaker of the National Assembly as a woman. So that they are quite are various gains that we have got as women in this country. All those points you mentioned are incredibly important, and I think that it creates this visibility of demonstrating what women can achieve and their, their capabilities. So that provides examples to not just other women as opportunities, but also to men to show that we are, are perfectly capable and, and competent of holding these posts. And the legislation that you've met, that you've you've spoken about from um, the treatment action campaign with ARVs to trying to alleviate aspects of, of gender-based violence that it's all about developing on women's rights thinking towards the future what do you think we need to build a more egalitarian society where we are seeing greater e- efforts of equality and limits aren't imposed on women I think we need more activism, especially by women, and we need to educate even the men that are amongst us. Um, and we need to ensure that people at the leadership are conscious um, of the fact that women are as important. I have no doubt, and I, I suppose because I am a woman, that there shouldn't be any question mark in terms of the capabilities, um, in terms of the competences that are asked but I think because of our past, the, um, especially in Africa, patriarchy, 
is sort of embedded in everybody's mind. And that's why maybe we still don't have a woman president of our country. So I think by education, by mobilizing advocacy, um, we should never stop. We should never stop to talk. We should never stop to make sure that our talent is is seen. We should never stop um, to excel in what we do. And maybe someday somebody will realize that, you know, there should be no limits. Um, but the, the quotas also work, you know, for me. Because once you say, um, if they are two positions, you see one should be a woman, people will see that, wow, there are women that are capable, there are women that are competent. In fact, there are more than men. And in my view, in most instances, women excel in most of the management positions because of the nature of the person in a woman who is able to deal with a whole lot of issues, confront and deal with the issues there and then, unlike in some instances, some male counterparts, they are not able to confront issues, they want to play nice and all of those things. So we need to lobby, we need to do advocacy, and we need to make sure that we excel all the time. Well, let's use this platform to do exactly that. Yes. Women are multidimensional. They have to address several components simultaneously. And apart from looking at the work environment and career opportunities, by far and large, the responsibility of rearing children falls on women's shoulders. And the juggle between career and motherhood is always controversial and, and, and sometimes challenging. How do you see this? Um, it is always a juggle and um, and it is always a struggle. But where there is a marriage, um, where, where the children are born out of marriage, we need to try to educate our spouses. We need to try and to make sure that we are equal in this thing. That I bought this child in my womb doesn't really matter when the child is out. It's both our responsibility. But I am glad that the number of paternity um, days leave has now been increased because at that early time, you should be able to make sure that you educate your husband that it is your responsibility. But I think also women strive to be superheroes, you know, super mom, super wife, super whatever. We are moms, we are wives, we are they. The, the, the neck in the family, I always say that I'm the neck, I'm not the head. So we should just do our job and let the men be able to do the same job that we do. Sometimes we do things that people can be able to do themselves, but we take it over upon ourselves. And for me, one of the most important things is to make sure that you have a support structure so that you can be able to balance in your career, in your role, as a mother um, and in your role as a, as a wife, if you are a wife. Thinking about the balance aspect, someone once told me, you can have it all, but not necessarily at the same time. <laughs> yes, not necessarily at the same time. Hence, you should be able to balance and discipline yourself. You, you, I think you can actually probably have it all at the same time. Perhaps by God's grace, I have been able to have it all and at the time when I wanted to have it, 
I, I can share you a, a brief story. When I was pregnant with my second born, um, I was the president of the Law Society, KwaZulu Natal. So my first child had had been born through a C-section, and so the second one had to be born through a C-section. And my gynae said, we should operate on such and such a date. I said, no, I have a I have a AGM on that day, which I will be presiding. In fact, I had a council meeting. He says, okay, when? I said, when the baby comes, we will operate. And he looked at me like, oh, wow. So when the AGM came, uh, the council meeting came, in the morning I felt that I had some pains here and there. But I thought, you know, I'm going to ignore this. Let me just go to this council meeting. I got there. I chaired my meeting. I finished. I get into a finance committee. I finished that at half past 12. I called my gun. I said, listen, I've got these pains. He said, please, can you just go to the hospital? And then I went. And they said, you are in labor. I said, oh, really? Can I go home? And they said, you're not going anywhere. So I, I did my council meeting. And I had my baby that afternoon. And in the evening, I sent everybody uh, that baby born and what have you. They said, but when? I said, when I was chairing your meeting, I was in labor. <laughs> you so, are. It, it can happen. You, you know? You're the epitome and, and of multitasking. <laughs> yeah, it was true multitasking. <laughs> two weeks later, I had the AGM. You know, two weeks, you haven't really healed. But I made sure that I go there because I don't want the criticism that, you see, women want this and that, but they can't. I was there, I chaired my HM and I finished what what they call small break for me was a feeding time break. So in, in the council they knew that small break is feeding time break. Wow. And so you you can try to have it all at the time when you want it. Wonderful story and uh, must be a, a a fantastic memory. One of the questions that I ask my guests on the show who've made tr- tremendous achievements in their in their respective fields of expertise is about some of the factors they consider have contributed to their success. Can you tell us, in your opinion, what do you think have been some of the key drivers to your success? Um, so I come from a rural village um, in, in the Eastern Cape. Um, the town is called Ennobo, and um, there are not so many educated people there. So I was determined um, to be a graduate in my own family. I was determined at the time to be a lawyer. And when I told my dad that I wanted to be a lawyer, he said, um, but all the lawyers that I see have got white hair. Are we gonna, are we gonna wait for so long to for you to be a lawyer? I said, no, I can do it, you know, whilst I'm this age and I will. So I've always been, at a very early age, been convinced that I can do it, I can do it. So for me, it has been determination, it has been focus, and and obviously perseverance and hard work, lots and lots of hard work, because you have to prove yourself times three than your opponents most of the time. So yeah, it's really been those. And whilst you were growing up, what would you say have been some of the pivotal moments in your life? Um, some of the pivotal moments in my life, uh, for instance, um, making sure that I graduate within the time um, uh, that was the, um, and being the, at the at the leadership of these um, societies, and that I, I, I would have, have done, and seeing because at least I'm much younger than some of the women, 
seeing some of the women presiding in big cases. And for me, those were some of the quite important um, areas in my life. To see some women judges in the Constitutional Court, to see some women judges in the Supreme Court of Appeal, to see some women appearing in court and getting to be judges, um, those are some 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 of the key important um, aspects that I saw as influential in my life. And because we're celebrating Women's Month, can you share with us who've been some of the strong women in your life? Um, one of my strong women, she's actually my friend, um, is my friend Andy Sondoni. She was the first woman president of the Black Lawyers Association. Um, the determination, the focus, the resilience that she showed played a very big role in my life. She's very honest. Um, the president of the Supreme Court of Appeal, Justice Maya, also from the Eastern Cape, young, married, had children. It showed me that it can actually be done. My mother, who's an uneducated woman, but was able to look after 11 children and make sure that all of them are graduates. She's one of my key role models in my life. Thank you for sharing them with us today. What would you say has been the best lesson that you've learned or lessons that you've learned throughout your career? One of the best lessons is that uh, nothing is really too much personal. Um, And when you lose, it's okay because you will win another. And you must have, and when you say it's okay to lose, but make sure that um, it, it doesn't become, you know, something that you do every day today. And when I say not personal, you need to direct every opposition that you have, not at a person, but at what the person does. So I mustn't hate Dr. Amelia, but I must hate what she has said. Because once you hate people, once you become so focused on personalities, you will lose focus. And one of the best lessons is to always, always remember where you come from. Because if you know where you come from, then you will never forget how you got to be where you are. And finally, in recognition of Women's Month, as we close out our conversation today, can you share a few words of inspiration that you'd like to pass on to girls and young women on the continent that are listening to the show? You know, with young women in particular, I'd like to... There are some key things in a person's life that you should make sure that are always there no matter what. Your integrity... You know, like just like ice, just like trust, once it's lost, it's very hard to be gained again. So just make sure that your integrity is at its best at all times. Be humble because it's only when you open your mouth that people know about you. Have faith. Have faith in what you believe in. I believe in God and all the time. I do the best that God has given me to do, and I always believe that he will do the rest. So I always do my best 
do your best, excel, and give it your very, very best, whatever you are doing. Because I always said, from the time I started to work as a professional assistant after I qualified as an attorney, I always had the belief in me that whenever I leave this company, they must cry. Not because of me as a person, but because of the work, of the hard work that I've done. Always be an asset in whatever you are doing. Your presence must be felt and always be that shining star in the corner. Thank you for those wonderful words of motivation and upliftment. It's been a pleasure having you on the program today. Thank you so much and thanks again, Dr. Amelia, for having me and I wish you all the very best. Enjoy this wonderful month and don't forget, God couldn't be everywhere. That is why he created women. (laughs) Love that statement. Happy Women's Day. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we have been talking to High Court Judge Toba Poyo Dwati from the KwaZulu-Natal Division of the High Court.